So, all that to say, we are in a series called Outgrowing God. We started it last week um, and talking about this idea that a lot of times the images and the understanding of who God is, of what Christianity is, of what the purpose of the church is, we learn these things a lot of times when we're younger. Some of you may have gone to Sunday school with like flannel graphs or cute cartoons or things like that. Uh, and a lot of times we learn these images of who God is, but then as we get older and we experience um, Life, uh, our problems seem to get bigger and bigger, and sometimes our problems outgrow our understanding of who God is. And this can become incredibly difficult for us. Last week, we talked about faith. We looked at the story of Jacob and how Jacob wrestled with God, like literally wrestled with God all night. And at the end of that, God blessed Jacob and he changed his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Very creative. Uh, and uh, just kidding, God. Um, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't slam God's names. Uh, it's going to be one of those days, guys. Uh, but Israel, the name Israel was the name that God gave Jacob. And then it's the name of God's chosen people. They were identified by their willingness, their ability uh, to wrestle with God. And so we looked at this idea of faith and the modern concept of faith. What we normally think of as faith, as faith is psychological certainty. So the more sure we are of something, the more faith we have. And that's kind of the modern concept of faith. But the biblical concept of faith, the faith that Israel had, the faith that Jesus invited us to have, is retaining or maintaining trust in God and in our relationship with God, even in the midst of uncertainty. So even when I don't know what's going to happen, I am sure of this relationship that I have. I'm sure this relationship can handle it. Even if I don't have the answers, even if I have questions, even if, I have, even if I'm angry or whatever it might be, I'm sure that my relationship can handle it. Not because I'm so great or I'm so strong, but because God can handle it. God can handle our emotions, our pain, our frustration. And so here's the deal. You need to learn, we each need to learn what it means to have this biblical understanding of faith because we have to be able to doubt and question and wrestle with our beliefs and with the problems that we come into contact with. Things like even this weekend when we see pain and chaos and violence, it causes us to question, how could God let this happen? I don't know if anybody else wrestled with that question. God, you could stop this. And so we have to be able to wrestle with these things. But even if you don't feel like it's important for you, even if you feel like, you know what, I've got it. I don't have any questions. I'm all in. I don't doubt. Even if you feel like you know enough or are certain enough, there are people around you that are doubting. There are people around you that have questions. There are people around you that are afraid or have lost hope or are looking for purpose, and they are wrestling. If you, as a follower of Jesus, don't get to a place where you are comfortable with the questions and with the wrestling, then you will never be comfortable allowing other people to wrestle. If you aren't okay with it, then every time somebody else asks a question about, but how could God you're never going to be comfortable letting them ask questions. Letting them, you're always going to want to give them easy answers, and you're going to want to steal their Jacob moment, that moment where they get to wrestle with God and see him face-to-face -face and experience, oh, I get it. 
We have to be comfortable with the wrestling. If not for ourselves, we have to be comfortable for the people that are around us. I know during our first pregnancy with our son, we were, my wife was in the hospital for three months. Um, from week 18 of the pregnancy to week 37, she was in the hospital on strict bed rest. And every day we got worse and worse news about how the pregnancy was going. Uh, and he's born, he's healthy. You guys have seen him shoving donuts in his mouth. He's fine now. Uh, but in that journey, it was incredibly difficult. And there was a season where we felt like every time we prayed and we trusted and we believed that something, that the news was going to come back good, it came back worse. And we got to a place where we just felt like we didn't even know if we could pray anymore. We didn't know if what good it would do. And there was people that had really nice things to say to us, cliches you may have heard, all things work for the good of those who love God, and, and you know, he's got a purpose, and, and those are true, but they weren't willing, they weren't comfortable with us wrestling with how terrible that season was. They wanted to just take the wrestling away and say, oh, don't wrestle, don't doubt, don't worry, they were uncomfortable with it. And I don't want us to be uncomfortable with other people as they're wrestling with God. So today we're going to talk about something that is possibly one of the most contentious topics for people in the church and people outside of the church. We're going to be talking about the data of science and the teachings of Scripture. And I'm going to fly through this. <laughs> uh, there's different types of sermons. Uh, some of them are meant to be encouraging. Some of them are meant to be challenging. Some of them are meant to be um, informative and, and teaching. And today is going to be a lot more on the teaching side, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but our, our culture continues to grow in its respect for science. And if people perceive that the Christian faith is incompatible or at odds with science, then as their respect for science increases, the respect for church and all that encompasses that will decrease Many studies have shown that one of the top reasons that a lot of people are walking away from church is because they've come to understand that being a Christian means that you can't believe in science. I don't know if you guys have seen Nacho Libre, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about it all week. You're just angry because I only believe in science. All week long, as I'm trying to study the Bible, I just think of Nacho Libre. If you haven't seen it, don't. It's not worth it. Uh, but there's a study, six reasons young people disconnect from the church. And number three reason is that churches come across as antagonistic to science. And there's a lot of numbers in there that I won't get into. But this is a, a major issue for people, especially young people, as they are growing up in a world with more information, more, um, I mean, it's everywhere. We can find out anything we want in a moment. And so this is becoming one of the a big issues is that churches are antagonistic towards science. There are people that are walking away from faith in God because their understanding of science has outgrown their understanding of God. And some of us Christians have held the door for them as they've left. Some of us have said, that's fine if you want to believe in science. Some of us are okay with that instead of allowing them the space to wrestle with their understanding and wrestle with their faith. So before we get into this topic, man, I've got so much to talk about, guys. 
I think it's important to cover a couple things. The most critical things for Christians to keep their eyes on. If you follow Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, the most important thing for us to keep our eyes on is who Jesus is and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus. This cross is central to it. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory and that Jesus expresses the very character of God. So Jesus is the most clear picture that we have of who God is. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then your faith is useless. And so Jesus and the resurrection is the most important, the most central thing to our understanding in our faith. There are some things that the Christian church has held to for thousands of years. Some people call these essential beliefs. A word that you may have heard is this word dogma. And so there's this outer ring that goes around the cross. And dogma is this thing in your beliefs which is truly foundational. And South Hills, we hold to historic, orthodox beliefs about our faith, about Christianity. These are beliefs that are reflected in things. I don't know if you guys have heard of something called the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I feel like I had a slide there. I do later. I'll get back to it. So dogma is something that is, is of critical importance to a belief in Christianity. And then there's an outer circle beyond that, and it's called doctrine. And doctrines are beliefs that Christians have had, but there's also been some disagreement. Um, there's been uh, different Christians interpret dogma or the essentials to mean different things. It's a way a particular church or denomination believes. Like there's some churches and some denominations that say you cannot ever, ever drink alcohol, ever. It is absolutely a no-no. And then there's other churches and denominations that say, I don't think that it's an absolute no-no, but the Bible does say that you should use moderation and you shouldn't be drunk. And it goes on to say these other things. And that's a difference in doctrine. That's a difference in the way that they understand what the Bible says. Does that make sense? There's some churches and some belief systems, some doctrines that say that God controls every single event in history. And then there's other doctrines that say, that they believe that, that people have free will and they have choices. And so doctrines are different ways of interpreting the scripture. And then the outermost ring, and this is why I think that this is an important thing to talk about today before we get into more science stuff, is opinion. Opinions are the outermost ring that we're going to talk about today. Opinions are essentially saying here is a way or some ways of looking at things that have a scriptural basis but they might not be official doctrines of the church. They don't go against the essential beliefs of what it means to be a Christian. It's not crazy thoughts. It's, you know, In-N-Out Burger is better than Five Guys. Yes. That is my opinion. It's pretty close to doctrine. But that is my opinion. And it's based on truth. Uh, now, if I said that Chick-fil-A has better burgers than Five Guys, that might still be true. Five Guys is not that good, you guys. No, I'm just kidding. So Chick-fil-A, it doesn't even, it's not even in the question. So Chick-fil-A, they don't serve burgers. So that opinion, we're not even going to talk about it. But In-N-Out and Five Guys, they 
are in that same system. And so opinions, what we're talking about is these are things that they fit inside of the biblical understanding, but they might not be dogma. Does that make sense? Okay, so we are going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Um, and what we're, falling, what we're talking about today for South Hills falls in the opinion circle. This does not go against the doctrine. This does not go against the essential beliefs of what South Hills believes. Um, as far back as you want to go, this wasn't an issue for the early church either. The Apostles' Creed was written around 390. That We have a picture of them when they wrote it. Look how serious those guys were. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, you guys can write that down. You can Google it, read it later on. This is one of the core beliefs, the dogma, essential beliefs of historic Christianity. And let me say this from the get-go. When we talk about Genesis 1, I believe that it is very important that God created the world and that God created human beings and that he created us in his image. I think that that is critical. I don't believe that this is the result of chance. I don't believe in atheistic evolution, that this is just all that there is. That God did it is central, but how God did it, I'm not sure is central in regards to understanding the gospel. And there's people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are being pushed out of the church that are, they, they believe that Science is incompatible with Christianity because they think that they have to believe this certain thing to be able to be a Christian. And it's critical for us as a church to say, man, I think that there might be some, some space for differing views and that we can still have a relationship with Jesus. There's a few different, there's a ton of views, and I'm just going to list off a couple of them. One view is that it's Genesis chapter 1 is meant to be interpreted as completely literal. There's many people that believe God created the universe in a literal seven days, or six days, and he rested on the seventh. Uh, they look at Genesis chapter 1 as a historical account. They believe the earth is only about 10,000 years old. That's one commonly held view, especially in the church. There's another view that it's a combination of literal and figurative language. There's people that believe God created the universe, but it might not have been a literal seven days. There's this thing called the gap theory. Uh, and then there's many people who think that God created the earth and he used evolutionary biological processes to do it. And that's different than atheistic evolution. That's, that's saying, no, God created, God caused this, God did this, and he used evolutionary biological processes to do it. There's a fourth view that many of us have held for years and years, myself included, that I would rather just not talk about it. <laughs> because inevitably, you're going to upset somebody. And I'm not great with science. And I don't know if it's essential. And so why don't we just not talk about it? So the reason we're talking about it is because there are people that feel like they can't have a relationship with God because somebody told them that if you believe in any form of evolution or any other form other than a, a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1, then you're out. One of our values is that we won't wait for other people to reach our friends. It's one of our values as a church. We won't wait for other people to reach our friends. We believe that it's our responsibility. 
And that's why it's important for you to understand that it's okay to wrestle with God when you don't understand. And can we have patience that God would teach and shape and transform our hearts and minds for ourselves? And can we believe that for other people as well? So I don't have time to talk about all of these viewpoints today, but nobody is leaving the church because they believe in a literal understanding of Genesis. And so what I want to do in my last two minutes, <laughs> uh, I didn't even mention this. We have burgers after church. Are you guys sticking around for burgers? Burgers and science. Uh, man, we bit off more than we could chew today. Um, so what I want to do is I want to open up space with Biblical reasons of why somebody could think that Genesis 1 could be not taken literally. I don't want to talk about the science. I want to talk about biblically. There's a, there's a biblical reason to believe that it might not be a literal, historical, scientific explanation of creation. And this is not an essential. And this isn't even a dogma or a doctrine for our church. This falls in the realm in the realm of opinion. And this is a way of looking at it. And you don't have to believe this way, but I want you to understand that there is a way of understanding it this way because of those people that are in your life. Because of those people that feel like they can't believe in science and Christianity. So even if you don't believe this, that's okay. But there is a way of understanding it this way. Does that make sense? I'm going to keep flying through. You guys good? Okay. Okay, three reasons. The first reason, the Hebrew word used in Genesis chapter 1 for day is the word yam. Everybody say that with me. Yum. Okay. It's a yum. You guys may be familiar if you're familiar with Jewish holidays like Yom Kippur and things like that. This is a, this is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew language only had about 8,000 words in it total, biblical Hebrew. The English language has about 400,000 words in it. So the words that they used oftentimes had 10 different meanings. Yom this Hebrew word yom is translated in other Bible verses. There's tons of references that I won't read to you all. But I can give them to you if you would like. Uh, there's other places where this word is translated as day, as in 24 hours. A time, as in this is the time of, as a year, as an age. It's translated as the word always, as the word season. So this word has a number of different translations. Proverbs 25, 13 says, like the cold snow in the time or in the yom of harvest are faithful messengers to those who send them. Genesis 18, 11, the story of Abraham and Sarah and this promise that God made that they would have a child. It says, Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time and Sarah was long past the age or the yom of having children. And so this word can be interpreted a number of different ways. Also in Genesis 1.14, it describes the six days during which God created various facets of the world. And it, it talks about the reason he created the sun and moon is to give signs to mark days and years. But in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't create the sun and moon until the fourth day. And so how could there be days and years if there was no sun and moon? And so there's 
things here in this translation, this understanding of what the word day is, biblically speaking, that could lead someone to believe that Genesis chapter 1 isn't meant to be taken literally. Again, I'm not saying that you need to believe this. I'm not asking you guys to change the way you think. I'm asking you guys to understand, biblically speaking, there is another opinion. I am certain that in and out is better. But I cannot make you agree with me. As hard as I try, some weirdos still think that five guys is better. And biblically speaking, there is space in this understanding of what a day is in the scripture that it could have not been a literal 24-hour period. The second thing, there are some passages in the Bible that cannot and should not be taken literally. And then a lot of people ask the question, well, if we can't take Genesis 1 literally, then how can we trust anything in the Bible? That's a common question that I've heard. And Tim Keller, uh, incredible pastor and author, he wrote this, and he says, the way to respect the authority of the biblical writers is to take them as they want to be taken. Sometimes they want to be taken literally, and sometimes they don't. And we must listen to them, not impose our thinking or our agenda on them. Genesis chapter 1 and the book of Ecclesiastes, did I say that wrong? Ecclesiastes, that's right. These are two areas in the Bible that there is constant debate over whether they're supposed to be taken literally or not. Genesis chapter 1 isn't the only thing. The Bible is not just a book that we have. It's a carefully curated collection of poems and letters and stories written in three different languages by multiple authors. It's not just a book that's written a certain way. Inside the Bible, there's historical narrative. There's genealogies. Those are the most interesting parts. You guys have all read those, I'm sure. The laws, there's proverbs, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic writing, there's parables, there's letters. And each of these serves different purposes in the Bible. And there are places in the scriptures where poetic and figurative language is used right alongside historical narrative. For instance, in 1 Samuel 2, it talks about, and actually a number of places in the scripture, it says that the earth is held up by pillars. And we don't take that literally. We don't take that literally, but it's a, it's a figurative language. Genesis 7 verse 11 says that when it rains, it's because God opens up the windows of heaven. And again, that's a figurative thing that's happening. It's, it's a poetic way of explaining. And some people would argue that's actually what they believed was happening based on their understanding of the world. They actually believe that that's how it worked. Judges chapter 5 is talking about a battle, and it says, uh, as uh, Judges 5.20, I believe, it says that the stars in the heavens came down and fought against the Syrians. But Judges 4, where it's actually talking about the historical version of that battle, it doesn't say anything about the stars of the heavens coming down, which I feel like is a pretty big point. If you were going to win a battle and the stars fought on your behalf, that would be something I would include. But Judges 4 tells the, the history, the, the account of what happened. And Judges 5 is a poetic song about the theological meaning of what happened, the, the poetic concept of what happened, that God was on their side. And so some people understand Genesis 1 to be a literal historical telling of creation. There's others that think that it is using a poetic language telling us that God created 
And again, I'm going to say this each time. I'm not asking you to believe that or you to change your beliefs. But biblically speaking, there is space where we can have this conversation with people and they don't feel like the church is anti-science. They don't feel like the church is pushing them out the door because we don't all agree on every single detail. There's space for this conversation. And lastly, in the last number of years, there have been dozens and dozens of creation stories from ancient Near Eastern cultures in the last 150 years or so that have been discovered. Some of these creation stories actually date back older than some of the biblical creation accounts and have similar structures of creation in seven days or floods or things like this. None of these were intended to answer scientific questions. They address larger questions such as who are we and what is our purpose and who do we worship? The ancient Babylonian account of creation uh, talks about this God. is a chief God named Marduk and he's primarily a good God and he became the chief God because he defeated all of the other gods, uh, which is how things worked. Uh, and he was battling an evil god named Tiamat for control of the world. Everybody say Marduk. Everybody say Tiamat. Everybody say, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> I know we're talking about a lot of information today, but I think that this is important information for us to discuss. So ultimately, he destroys this evil god of chaos, Tiamat, and from Tiamat's remains, Marduk creates humans to be his slaves. So this primarily good god defeats evil, and from the evil god, he creates humans. And so you can already see this picture of there's goodness and there's evil inside of these people. And on a regular basis, these, these people believe that Marduk must be kept happy with sacrifices which were seen as feeding him to help ensure protection during war and things like this. And many scholars believe that the biblical, the Christian story of creation or Jewish understanding of creation was meant in part to refute other cultures' understandings and stories like this God, Marduk, and Tiamat. And for ancient Jews, rather than there being a God of the sun and a God of the moon, for ancient Jewish people, the one true God simply spoke the sun and moon into existence. The God already existed. He was not created. Genesis 1.16 said God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night, and he also made the stars. God spoke these into existence. He didn't have to battle to become God. He was not created or born. He always was. Genesis 1 says in the beginning, God. He was there from the beginning. And this telling of this story refutes other cultures' understandings of, of the gods. He doesn't create humans to be his slaves, but he creates them in his image, male and female, with dignity. In verse 27 and 28, it says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. They're not made to be slaves. They're made in his image. They have value importance, worth. He, they were blessed. They didn't feed this God, but this God actually provided for them. The Babylonians felt like they had to appease and feed this God. But in verse 29, it says, God said to them, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all of the fruit trees for your food. Look at what I've given you. 
to provide for you, to care for you. These differences from the other creation stories, like the Babylonians' accounts, they express profound differences in who the ancient Jewish people believed that they were and who they believed that God was. And most scholars and theologians believe that the most important thing or the primary thing to take away from Genesis 1 is not scientific facts, but truths about who God is and who we are. That is the point, the main point of Genesis 1, is not to understand science, it's to understand who we are and who God is. So these are three different biblical understandings, biblical reasons on why Genesis 1 may not be taken literally, and I'll say it a last time. I'm not trying to convince anybody to believe differently than you already do, but for those people that you know, that may feel a tension, that they are not welcome, that they can't be a part of the church of Jesus. Can we create enough elbow space to say, man, you might believe some things differently than I do, but we still have the same core essential beliefs, this dogma of, who, of what we believe is the same. We might disagree about how God created the world, but the beautiful thing is that we can all agree that God created the world. That, not how, is the important thing. And so, which understanding of creation is essential to the gospel? I would say none of them. None of them are essential to understanding the gospel. It goes back to the middle of this circle that we looked at earlier. It goes back to Jesus as the full picture of God's radiance and God's character and his resurrection from the grave. That is what is essential. It's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. How do you know that? Well, Jesus said so. In Luke 24, verse 27, this is after Jesus is resurrected. He's walking along the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and they don't recognize him. And so they're having this conversation. Have you guys ever sent a text about somebody to that person? You were like trying to send it to some- Nobody else is that evil, right? Nobody's going to admit to that one. I tried to get you guys. I've never done that either, of course. The disciples are talking about Jesus and what they believed he was going to be, and, and, but you know, he, he was crucified and all, and all these different things, and they're talking about him to him. And then Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, and it says in verse 27, then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses, which Genesis is one of those, and he went on through all of the prophets pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. Jesus, with the disciples after the resurrection, he said, let's start from the beginning and let me show you the way that all of this has been about me the entire time. All of this has been pointing to me the entire time. And then a lot of people have this question, so does that mean that you can just believe anything and be a Christian? And in Romans 10, 9 is what we hold to, is what we believe. It says, so if you believe deep in your heart that God raised Jesus from the pit of death, and if you voice your allegiance by confessing the truth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That's what we believe. That's what we hold on to. This is one of the essential beliefs, the dogma beliefs for us as a church. That's what we believe it takes to be a follower of Jesus. 
And we're not willing, and I'm not willing to let any obstacle get in the way of somebody else having a relationship with Jesus. Any unnecessary wall or obstacle, I want to push that out of the way. Our senior pastor, Chris Songson, says this all the time, and I don't know if he came up with it, but he said, we will do anything short of sinning to help people understand that Jesus loves them. We won't let any unnecessary obstacle get in the way of people having a relationship with Jesus. There's too much at stake. The early church revolved around a common belief in Jesus, not a common interpretation of Genesis. As I close this down, I know we flew through so much stuff. There's two things I want to say just as we close. One, um, over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, religious leaders came and they asked Jesus to give them the correct interpretation of the law, which was their Bible. What does it mean? What does it take? Give us the correct interpretation of the law. And almost every single time, Jesus responds by addressing issues of the heart. In almost every one of those conversations, he responds by addressing issues of the heart. And many of them walked away frustrated because they wanted either to trap him or they wanted the right answer or the do this, don't do this. And Jesus rarely makes it that easy, that black and white. And my fear is that if we become, let me say this. There's another phrase that has been around for years and years. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. And so for us as a church, here, South Hills, Costa Mesa, for South Hills as a church, and my prayer is for the church at large, that we would invite people to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead and that they can have a relationship with him. And that we would have unity in that, but in the non-essentials, that there would be freedom and in every aspect that there would be love for the people that are still wrestling with God, that are still wrestling to understand faith, Christianity, creation, suffering, pain, hopelessness, the meaning of life. People are wrestling with these things. And we want to stay true to the essentials, but we want to have freedom and love in, in the non-essentials and in all things. We will not make a person's understanding of Genesis 1 the litmus test of their relationship with Jesus. Um, I know that there is a, a ton. I flew through that. I probably spent 30 hours, 40 hours over the last two weeks studying. And I, I mean, that was maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, so there's a ton here. And again, my goal isn't to change your understanding of creation. My my goal isn't to change your understanding of Genesis 1. This series, our goal and our hope is to look at the reasons why people feel like they are outgrowing their understanding of God and find out how can we talk about this in true ways that help people stay connected to who God is. Not just, it doesn't really matter what you believe, but in biblically honest 
and true ways, how can we invite people to stay connected to God no matter what place in life they might be at? And I think for us, the invitation, somebody asked me the question this week, well, how would you have created the universe? It's like, I don't know. (laughs) And there's a piece for us that I feel like sometimes we feel like we know so much that the mystery and the wonder of who God is, is completely lost. And I would like to invite us back to a place of being overwhelmed by who God is. That he created us in his image. That he blessed us. That he provides for us. That he chose to have a relationship with us. If you guys will bow your heads, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Um, God, there is things that we grow up believing, things that we maybe have learned ourselves as adults that we've held on to, um, and they are good things. But God, what happens a lot of times in the world around us, what happens a lot of times in church, in our faith, is that we become so confident and so sure of what we know that a different opinion or a different doctrine or a different understanding terrifies us and we immediately reject not only the opinion, but we reject the person. And so God, as we are in this series trying to understand how we can best reach the people around us, invite the people around us to experience hope and purpose and forgiveness and joy to the full and eternal life. God, as we invite these people, God, would you remind us that you are far more wonderful and complex than we could ever understand. And you are calling people to be in a relationship with you and that Jesus is the cornerstone of our relationship with you. Would you help us remember that? Would you help us, give us opportunities to invite people that may be frustrated or discouraged or hurt when it comes to Christianity? Would you help us to come into contact with those people and be able to invite them back into a conversation that we would be comfortable with their wrestling, with their Jacob moment, and that we would be comfortable ourselves in these moments? God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.